right guys cue the funeral music um <laughs> um not quite yet turn on this light now i can see all right always good to be able to see to read um light helps pro tip um yeah um so we left off the last chapter um nick goes home after sort of kind of blowing uh jordan off a bit and um along with tom and daisy he was just kind of sick of all of them um and fair enough gatsby was hiding in the bushes um <laughs> you can't make this stuff up folks all right um chapter eight starts i couldn't sleep all night a foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound, and I tossed half-sick between grotesque reality and savage, frightening dreams. Toward dawn, I heard a, da a taxi go up Gatsby's Drive, and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress. I felt that I had something to tell him, something to warn him about, and morning would be too late. So... That was a long so. So, Nick goes over, and um, Gatsby's front door is open. So he just walks in. Gatsby's leaning against the table in the hall, heavy with dejection or sleep, it says. Um, nothing happened, he said wanly, wanly, however you say that. Um, I waited, and about four o'clock she came to the window and stood there for a minute and then turned out the light. His house had never seemed so enormous to me as it did that night when we hunted through the great rooms for cigarettes. We pushed aside curtains that were like pavilions, and felt over innumerable feet of dark wall for electric light switches. Once I tumbled with a sort of splash upon the keys of a ghostly piano. There was an inexplicable amount of dust everywhere, and the rooms were musty, as though they hadn't been aired for many days. Um, I'd say this definitely points towards um, Gatsby's dream being sort of um I don't know if vacated is the right word, but it's sort of been vanquished, I guess. Um You ought to go away, I said. It's pretty certain they'll trace your car. Go away now, old sport? Go to Atlantic City for a week or up to Montreal. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope, and I couldn't bear to shake him free. It was this night he told me the strange story of his youth with Dan Cody, told it to me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice, and the long, secret extravaganza was played out. I think that he would have acknowledged anything now without reserve, but he wanted to talk about Daisy. So it's at this point that he tell that Gatsby tells Nick about um tells him the whole story that he told back. It was included in the book in chapter six. I want to say chapter six. But that could be wrong. I wanna say six. Could be earlier. Oh, there it is. 
Um, shit, I think it was earlier. Anyway, not worth a diversion. Um, he had told it earlier in the book because he, um, Nick, the narrator, felt like it was important to go ahead and clear Gatsby's name a little bit before before we got too far into it. It might have been chapter four. Um, but anyway, um, um, yeah. so Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice. Um, that's, that's a very powerful sentence. Um, because Jay Gatsby's a character in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, because James Gatz is um is his real name. Jay Gatsby is a persona that he created um pretty much. And uh Tom's hard malice. Um it just it couldn't survive that. Um Let's let's see a little bit more about Daisy and how uh, sort of how Gatsby felt about Daisy. How he uh, she was the first nice girl he had ever known. Um, he found her excitingly desirable. There was a right mystery about it. A hint of bedrooms upstairs more beautiful and cool than other bedrooms. I'm talking about her uh, house, I think. Um, and sort of sort of mentions um in another way what um what he sort of saw like the what the the um the beginnings if you will of uh his sort of infatuation his um just fantasy sort of um deal with with daisy um so he knew he was in Daisy's house by a colossal accident. However glorious might be his future as Jay Gatsby, he was at present a penniless young man without a past, and at any moment the invisible cloak of his uniform might slip from his shoulders. So he made the most of his time. Um, so eventually he took Daisy one, one still October night, took her because he had no real right to touch her hand. He might have despised himself, for he had certainly taken her under false pretenses. I don't mean that he had traded on his phantom millions, but he had deliberately given Daisy a sense of security. He let her believe that he was a person from much the same strata as herself, that he was fully able to take care of her. As a matter of fact, he had no such facilities. He had no comfortable family standing behind him, and he was liable at the whim of an impersonal government to be blown anywhere about the world. This is, but he didn't despise himself, and it didn't turn out as he had imagined. He had intended, probably, to take what he could and go, but now he found that he had committed himself to the following of a grail. He knew that Daisy was extraordinary, but he didn't realize just how extraordinary a nice girl could be. She vanished into her rich house, into her rich full life, leaving Gatsby nothing. He felt married to her. That was all. It's interesting, the use of word here. He had committed himself to the following of a grail. Um, you think grail, you think of the Holy Grail. 
um, of King Arthur, of Monty Python in a silly context. But you think of the Holy Grail, you think of Indiana Jones, all of um, Monty Python and Indiana Jones, of course, were, were derived from sort of the Arthurian legends of the Grail. Um, and I personally do not know a ton about that. Um, so it would be interesting to dig into that some more um, with some of my friends who actually do know a good deal about that sort of that, like the Arthurian literature. Um, so that could be an idea for um, the future. But you think of this this object that's always beyond beyond grasp, um, this sort of. I want to say enchanted, but enchanted is not quite the right word. This sort of, um, not only holy, but mythical object. Um, I say I'm a lot. This mythical object that someone's searching for, someone's constantly going after, trying to, trying to capture in a way. Um, so I find his use of, yeah, to summarize that. Yeah, I think, I think just the use of the word grail means something there. Um, yeah, something to dig into. Um, surely I don't want to spend too much time on it just right now. I do want to dig into that. Um, that's something that I haven't really like. I underlined the the phrase there, but I never really thought of the full possibility of that phrase until just then. So, and I, I've read this book eight nine times. Um, every time I read this book, I, I, I see something new in the text that I want to dive into. It's 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 the richest text of its length that I've, I've read, I would say. Um, let's see. Got a quote from Gatsby, another part of the story that Nick's just now revealing. Um, I can't describe to you how surprised I was to find out I loved her old sport. I even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over, but she didn't because she was in love with me too. She thought I knew a lot because I knew different things from her. Well, there I was, way off my ambitions, getting deeper in love every minute, and all of a sudden I didn't care. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do? Just, just think about that for a minute. He feels so unworthy of her for whatever reason, possibly because she's monetarily worth so much more than he is. Um, they come from completely different places. She's sort of on this pedestal, and he's just like there, you know? Um, but he just... What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do? There's a sense of, um, there's a sense of, 
There's a potential for him to get lost in that ideal, a potential for him to see that or um, just kind of sink into that and just kind of what's the point of of doing all the things that he wants to do or that he is potentially capable of doing or that he wants to do. He's so smitten um, that he, he he finds that just telling her that he was going to do it in a way satisfies him that actually doing these things cannot do, which is very dangerous, I would say, um, to a person to get to that point where you feel like talking about doing something is more important no just I don't know, just generally better perhaps you think than actually doing those things this is on the last afternoon before he went abroad he sat with daisy in his arms for a long silent time it was a cold fall day with fire in the room and her cheeks flushed now and then she moved and he changed his arm a little and once he kissed her dark shining hair the afternoon had made them tranquil for a while, as if to give them a deep memory of the long parting the next day promised. They had never been closer in their month of love, nor communicated more profoundly one with another than when she brustled si brushed silent ag lips against his coat's shoulder, or when he touched the end of her finger gently as though she were asleep. Then it goes on to say, he did extraordinarily well in the war, and it sort of uh, briefly mentions his accolades again because he's sort of mentioned them earlier in the novel so after the armistice he tried frantically to get home but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to oxford instead so he did go to oxford right um we get the true story earlier in the book um that he tells nick um that nick kind of recounts for us and it's it's sort of repeated again here briefly um just for i guess proof if you will um, said he was worried now. There was a quality of nervous despair in Daisy's letters. She didn't see why he wouldn't come. He was feeling the pressure of the world outside, and she wanted to see him and feel his presence beside her and be reassured that she was doing the right thing after all. For Daisy was young, and her artificial world was redolent of orchids and pleasant, cheerful snobbery and orchestras, which set the rhythm of the year summing up the sadness and suggestiveness of life in new tunes. All night the saxophones wailed the hopeless comment of the Beale Street blues, while a hundred pairs of golden and silver slippers shuffled the shining dust. Damn. I could read that sentence over and over again. Those two sentences. I, I could just read that over and over again. It's just such beautiful writing but Daisy was young in her artificial world Daisy lives in a dream world she's grown up wealthy extraordinarily wealthy old money etc a dream world. 
And one of my friends said earlier, and they didn't come up with this, I don't believe. Um, I believe it was a friend who told them this, and the friend may have gotten it from somewhere else. But Daisy Faye is, in a lot of ways in this book, and I've never thought about this until they said that, and I want to look deeper into this whole idea, but she's, the, the name Daisy Faye, Faye Fairy. There's a mythical quality about Daisy in this, not just in Gatsby's eyes, but in in even Nick's eyes as well. So there's something there's something to that, I think. And I want I want to look deeper into that, but for the sake of this podcast, just kind of um think about the dream world, the fantasy that Daisy's life is, and the possible fae or fairy relevance there. Um, it's, it's interesting. Through this twilight universe, Daisy began to move again with the season. Suddenly, she was again keeping half a dozen dates a day with half a dozen men and drowsing asleep at dawn with the beads and chiffon of an evening dress tangled among dying orchids on the floor beside her bed. And all the time, something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now, immediately, and the decision must be made by some force of love, of money, of unquestionable practicality that was close at hand. That force took shape in the middle of the spring with the arrival of Tom Buchanan. There was a wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position, and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reads Gatsby while he was still at Oxford. It jumps back to the present af- after that. And um, it, was dawn, it was dawn now on Long Island. Um, they're opening the windows, filling the house with the, with the sunlight that's coming up now. Um, let's see. I don't think she ever loved him. Gatsby turned around from a window and looked at me challengingly. You must remember, old sport, she was very excited this afternoon. He told her those things in a way that frightened her, that made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper. And the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. He sat down gloomily. Of course, she might have loved him just for a minute when they were first married and loved me more even then, do you see? Suddenly he came out with a curious remark. In any case, he said, it was just personal. What could you make of that, except to suspect some intensity in his conception of the affair that couldn't be measured? (laughs) Almost anybody would have given up by this point, yeah? The sort of fantasy of their of their affair has has dissipated by this point. There was the whole scene in the last chapter in the hotel where she pretty much chose Tom because likely because Gatsby was just asking too much. He wanted her to say she had never loved Tom, all these things she couldn't say. And he just, she just couldn't say it. And then Tom went on the offensive and sort of destroyed him, destroyed Gatsby's character in ways that um, 
he couldn't recover from in Daisy's eyes, I don't think. And, but he's, he's still sort of in, in a, in a bit of denial here. I think he, he, he's trying to convince himself that he and Daisy are supposed to be together, that all this that has happened the past five years is nothing. Um, yeah. Said he came back from France when Tom and Daisy were still on their wedding trip and made a miserable but irresistible journey to Louisville and last of his army pay. He stayed there a week, walking the streets where their footsteps had clicked together through the November night and revisiting the out-of-the-way places to which they had driven in their white car. Just as Daisy's house had always seemed to him more mysterious and gay than other houses, so his idea of the city itself, even though she was gone from it, was pervaded with a melancholy beauty. So he, he, came, he comes back to Louisville after Tom and Daisy are married. They're on their honeymoon. Um, they're rich, so it's probably really long at this time. And he's sort of wandering around, and he sees the, the ghosts of her. Um, it doesn't specifically say that necessarily, but you kind of get the, get the sense that he's kind of... <sighs> seeing all the places they went, the things that they did together. And he's, he's just, she's not there with him, but still the feeling of her is there when he sees those places, he thinks of her. And it's just, it just further, I think ingrains that sort of fantastical element of, of what's going on um, in his mind with them. Um, He has, he has no money at this point. So he went out to the open vegetable and sat down on a folding chair, and the station slid away, and the backs of unfamiliar buildings moved by. Then out into the spring fields, where a yellow trolley raced them for a minute with people in it who might once have seen the pale magic of her face along the casual street. He's looking at, like, a uh, sort of train here. And even other people's faces... He doesn't see other people's faces, only he sees other people's faces that might have looked at Daisy. Boys down bad. <laughs> um, yeah. He stretched out his hand desperately as if to snatch only a wisp of air to save a fragment of the spot that she had made lovely for him. But it was all going by too fast now for his blurred eyes, and he knew that he had lost that part of it, the freshest and the best forever. Back to the present. It was nine o'clock when we finished breakfast and went out on the porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather, and there was an autumn flavor in the air. The gardener, the last one of Gatsby's former servants, came to the foot of the steps. The fact that the previous day, when everything was going down, was the hottest day of the year. Tempers were high. You know, Fitzgerald did this for a reason. He kind of sets the mood with with the weather. Um, and one of my professors has done a. I haven't read it. I want to get it from her. She's done a. She did a paper once on on Fitzgerald and weather. And if she didn't include this, she missed probably a giant portion of it. But I have a feeling she probably did. 
Um, it, it says the night had made a sharp difference in the weather and there was an autumn flavor in the air. The weather reflects the moods of the main cast here of, of Daisy and Tom and Gatsby. Everything's super hot, high tempered, fiery the day before. And now it's autumn. It's crisp. It's cool. It's sort of calmer, if you will. And um, again, you notice things. I notice things every time I read through. I just noticed that. Um, so I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. One of the servants says. Leaves will start falling pretty soon, and there's always trouble with the pipes. Don't do it today, Gatsby answered. He turned to me apologetically. You know, old sport, I've never used that pool all summer. I looked at my watch and stood up. Twelve minutes to my train. I didn't want to go to the city. I wasn't worth a decent stroke of work, but it was more than that. I didn't want to leave Gatsby. I missed that train and then another before I could get myself away. Nick sort of feels, I think, well, first of all, Nick's an unreliable narrator. I think I established this earlier on in, 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 um, in, a, in a very early chapter. The Nick's an unreliable narrator. So it's possible he's sort of saying, creating this after the fact that he didn't want to leave, that he felt some sort of dread about about the day and how the day would go. And so he says he, he, he keeps missing buses because he you get the sense that he, he doesn't want to leave because he feels there's a finality in leaving. I'll call you up, I said finally. Nick says, do it old, or do old sport. I'll call you about noon. We walked slowly down the steps. I suppose Daisy will call too. He looked at me anxiously as if he hoped I'd corroborate this. So even Gatsby's starting to lose hope. Um, I suppose so. Well, goodbye. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned around. They're a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I've always been glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. First, he nodded politely, and then his face broke into that radiant and understanding smile, as if we'd been in ecstatic cahoots on that fact all the time. Because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. Did he? Did he really disapprove of Gatsby from beginning to end? If Nick really disapproved of him from beginning to end, then there's a lot in the middle of this book that is an outright lie. So any way you cut this, He's an unreliable narrator. Uh, food for thought, I suppose. But there's so much foreshadowing as well in the, in this book. Um, from the first chapter, you can look back and see that Gatsby's going to die. You may not get that the first time you read it. You may. I think a lot of people don't. 
I think most people don't. I didn't. But I think you could. Especially after you've read it before, you, you go back and you read it and you're like, okay. You can kind of point to the to the moments in there where it points towards Gatsby's death, even from the from the very first chapter when it says like he was it says he turned out all right in the end. No, Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It was what preyed on Gatsby. What foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. That's page two. From page two, you potentially know Gatsby's going to die. You may not pick that up the first time you read it, but you definitely pick it up after you've read it. The second, third, fourth, time you pick it up at some point because it's there he's not necessarily trying to hide it even it's like in how i met your mother when ted always spoiler alert if you haven't seen how i met your mother all the way but it's been like 10 years um it's like ted always talks about the mother in the past tense you're not so like part of you surprised when it happened when she dies but the other part of you is like, okay, it makes sense. He's always talked about her in the past tense. He's talking to his kids. You think the mother's not there the whole time? Just out at the grocery store or out painting or out doing whatever she's doing? Even if she's a lawyer or a doctor or something that takes up a bunch of time if she's an astronaut you know she's still not just gonna disappear for long enough for him to tell a story as long as he's telling <laughs> so uh jordan calls nick up at his office says she often called him at that hour but she says she's left daisy's house she's at hempstead and she's going down to southampton that afternoon um probably it had been tactful to leave daisy's house but the act annoyed me and her next remark made me rigid you weren't so nice to me last night how could it have mattered then or how could it have mattered then silence for a moment then however i want to see you I want to see you, too. Suppose I don't go to Southampton and come into town this afternoon. No, I don't think this afternoon. Very well. It's impossible this afternoon. Various. We talked like that for a while, and then abruptly we weren't talking any longer. I don't know which of us hung up with a sharp click, but I know I didn't care. I couldn't have talked to her across a tea table that day if I never talked to her again in this world. I called Gatsby's house a few minutes later, but the line was busy. He's so worried about Gatsby, he can't even focus in, or care enough about his more romantic relationship, if you will. Um, and again, he's telling this story after the fact. He doesn't... So he, he might have... The narrator here, Nick, might have altered this to make it seem like he 
was more of the only one who who really cared about Gatsby. He was so worried about Gatsby, he he just kind of brushed Jordan off, right? Um, when I passed the ash heaps on the train that morning, I had crossed deliberately to the other side of the car. I suppose there'd be a curious crowd around there all day with little boys searching for dark spots in the dust and some garrulous man telling over and over what had happened until it became less and less real even to him and he could tell it no longer and Myrtle Wilson's tragic achievement was forgotten. Now I want to go back a little and tell what happened at the garage after we left there the night before. So they had difficulty locating the sister, Catherine. Um, she may have broken a rule against drinking that night. You remember her from chapter two, three? As as the, um, the girl who uh, felt just as good on nothing at all. Didn't need to drink to have a good time at a party or anything. When she arrived, she was stupid with liquor and unable to understand what, that the ambulance had already gone to flushing. When they convinced her of this, she immediately fainted, as if that was the intolerable part of the affair. So anyway, someone uh, took her in his car to the hospital or whatever. Until long after midnight, a changing crowd lapped up against the front of the garage while George Wilson rocked himself back and forth on the couch inside. Slowly going insane. It doesn't say that. I'm adding it. Um, although you could argue overnight, it's not that slow. But we did see him being less than less than sane the day before when they arrived. So there's that as well. Um, anyway. About three o'clock, the quality of Wilson's incoherent muttering changed. He grew quieter and began to talk about the yellow car. He announced that he had a way of finding out whom the yellow car belonged to, and then he blurted out that a couple of months ago, his wife had come from the city with her face bruised and her nose swollen. Courtesy of Tom. But when he heard himself say this, he flinched and began to cry. Oh my God, again in his groaning voice. Michaelis made a clumsy attempt to distract him. How long have you been married, George? Come on there. Try and sit still a minute and answer my question. How long have you been married? Twelve years. Ever had any children? Come on, George. Sit still. I asked you a question. Did you ever have any children? He's trying to distract him, sort of. How do you distract? How do you, how do you sort of, I don't even know if cheer up's the right word, but kind of pull someone back from that edge of despair when they have just lost their wife to something so horrible and sudden right before they're running away together sort of to start a new um he asked him if he had a church he goes to and uh, George says he doesn't belong to any um, Michaela says, you ought to have a church for times like this. You must have gone to church once. Didn't you get married in a church? And he says, that was a long time ago. Look in the drawer there, he said, pointing at the desk. Which drawer? That drawer, that one. Michaela opened the drawer next near, nearest his hand. There wasn't, there was nothing in it but a small expensive dog leash made of leather and braided silver. It was apparently new. This, he inquired, holding it up. 
Wilson stared and nodded. I found it yesterday afternoon. She tried to tell me about it, but I knew it was something funny. You mean your wife bought it? She had it wrapped in tissue paper on her bureau. You ever wonder what happens to the dog? In the apartment? It kind of disappears, doesn't it? I know I just ruined your day. But it's ruined mine before. Multiple times. So, you're welcome. We will deal with this together. Um... Then he killed her, said Wilson. His mouth dropped open suddenly. Who did? I have a way of finding out. You're morbid, George, said his friend. This has been a strain to you and you don't know what you're saying. You'd better try and quit... So quiet. Can't talk. You'd better try and sit quiet till morning. He murdered her. It was an accident, George. Wilson shook his head. His eyes narrowed and his mouth widened slightly with the ghost of a superior. <laughs> I know, he said definitely. I'm one of these trusting fellows, and I don't think any harm to nobody. But when I get to know a thing, I know it. It was the man in that car. She ran out to speak to him, and he wouldn't stop. He's not entirely wrong. I would argue that he is completely right. Myrtle was the one that was wrong. Because Myrtle did run out to his... To like thinking it was Tom in the car because it was Tom had driven that car that morning. Yes. Um. Said he believed that Mrs. Wilson had been running away from her husband rather than trying to stop any particular car. Um, Michaelis made this observation. How could she have been like that? She's a deep one, said Wilson, as if that answered the question. Um. I spoke to her, he muttered after a long silence. I told her she might fool me, but she couldn't fool God. I took her to the window. With an effort, he got up and walked to the rear window and leaned with his face pressed against it. And I said, God knows what you've been doing, everything you've been doing. You may fool me, but you can't fool God. Standing behind him, Michaela saw with a shock that he was looking at the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, which had just emerged pale and enormous from the dissolving light. God sees everything, repeated Wilson. That's an advertisement, Michaelis assured him. Someone, Something made him turn away from the window and look back into the room, but Wilson stood there a long time, his face close to the window pane, nodding into the twilight. I'm not a psychologist. But it appears that... It appears that George Wilson has suffered some sort of psychotic break or whatever the actual term is for it, if I'm wrong. Again, not a psychologist. He suffered some sort of break in his mind where he thinks that that advertisement of the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg that has popped up three or four times already in this, in this novel, um, again, fits his foreshadowing. He thinks that that's God watching him. He's clearly, clearly unwell, right? But no one, a lot of times people don't tend to notice these things or think too much of them until it's too late. So we continue. 
said, by six o'clock, Michaelis was worn out and grateful for the sound of the car stopping outside. It was one of the watchers of the night who before who had promised to come back, so he cooked breakfast for three, which he and the other man ate together. Wilson was quieter now, and Michaelis went home to sleep. When he awoke four hours later and hurried back to the garage, Wilson was gone. His movements, he was on foot at the time, were afterward traced to Port Roosevelt and then to Gads Hill, where he bought a sandwich that he didn't eat and a cup of coffee. He must have been tired and walking slowly, for he didn't reach Gads Hill till noon. Thus far, there was no difficulty in accounting for his time. There were boys who had seen a man acting sort of crazy and motorists at whom he stared oddly from the side of the road. Then, for three hours, he disappeared from view. The police, on the strength of what he said to Michaela, said that he had a way of finding out. Suppose that he had spent that time going from garage to garage thereabouts, inquiring for a yellow car. On the other hand, no garage man who had seen him ever came forward, and perhaps he had an easier, surer way of finding out what he wanted to know. Tom Buchanan. It's never stated. It's alluded to in chapter nine. And I would argue that that's exactly where the fuck he found out. Excuse my language. I do not like Tom Buchanan. I do not. Anyway, by half past two, he was in West Egg where he asked someone the way to Gatsby's house. So by that time, he knew Gatsby's name. If you're not getting shivers and uh, if you're not worried for Gatsby's life by this point. This would work better in a video format at this particular moment because I'm giving you a look. Um, so at 2 o'clock Gatsby put on his bathing suit and left word with the butler that if anyone phoned word was to be brought to him at the pool. Um, yes. No telephone or message arrived, but the butler went without his sleep and waited for it until four o'clock, until long after there was anyone to give it to if it came. I have an idea that Gatsby himself didn't believe it would come, and perhaps he no longer cared. If that was true, he must have felt that he had lost the old warm world, paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky through frightening leaves and shivered as he found what a grotesque thing a rose is and how raw the sunlight was upon the scarcely created grass. A new world, material without being real, where the poor ghosts, breathing dreams like air, drifted fortuitously about, like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding toward him through the amorphous trees. The chauffeur, he was one of Wolfsheim's protégés, heard the shots. Afterward, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house, and my rushing anxiously up the front steps was the first thing that alarmed anyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe, with scarcely a word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener, and I, hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as fresh flow from one end urged its way toward the drain at the other, with little ripples that were hardly the shadows of waves. The laden mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely corrugated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaves revolved it slowly, tracing, like the leg of a compass, a thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass, and the Holocaust was complete. It's worth noting 
that the word that this was written in 1924, published in 1925, the Holocaust, quote unquote, had not occurred yet. So the word Holocaust was more of a general word that just meant destruction. It didn't have the extra um, or more prominent even connotation that it does now. Like when you think Holocaust now, you think of one particular event. You don't think of an idea. You don't think of Holocaust being destruction. You think of the Holocaust being what's it, six million Jews in concentration camps. It it has a different meaning. Well, it has the same meaning, but it has a different connotation, a different um reference. Um I just have in my in my notes here it says it just means destruction, common use of the word prior to World War II. Um and that's the end of the chapter. I had way more to say about this chapter than I thought I did. And uh part of the reason it's as long as it is, of course, because sometimes I start reading quotes from the book and I just can't stop reading because I am an unashamed simp for Scott and his writing. So there is that. But we've got one more chapter left. I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to go back. Um, I'm just going to reread the whole thing because I want to. That's the real reason, <laughs> but um, I'm going to reread the entire thing, and then I'm going to do a sort of overview episode, I guess you could say, just talking about the entire book in general um, to sum up and conclude this this series on The Great Gatsby. Yeah. So I hope I hope you've enjoyed this. We still we still got a couple more. Like I said, um, if you're not enjoying it, you you're probably not still listening. So, um, but yeah, if you're enjoying this or getting anything from this at all, that makes me happy. Um, if you're listening to this, even if you're not, still kind of makes me happy because. It's The Great Gatsby. Um, if you disagree with anything I said, feel free to uh, to send me a message. Yeah, I'm not always right. I can admit that. And, uh, yeah. I think that's all I got for this this particular episode. Because uh, it was longer than I than I intended it to be, or that I thought it would be for such a short chapter, but there was there was a lot in there, um, and a lot of good, a lot of good prose to read, which uh, always makes things makes these episodes longer when I get to the point where I'm just reading chunks of Fitzgerald's writing. 
Um, surprised it hasn't happened more often, honestly. Um, I've been rather restraining myself, if you will. So, yeah. I'll see you soon for the final chapter. Um, but until then, keep on reading.